We are about to chat with two women working hard to keep babies safe. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook, or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This episode was developed in partnership with Safe Babies, a program of zero to three. This is Jack, and I think you guys know by now that I'm a pretty big fan of this Safe Babies approach. And so today I brought my friend Andrea back into the mix because we're gonna dig even deeper into zero to three and Safe Babies. Thank you for joining us today, Andrea. And it looks like you brought some friends with you this time. I did. I'm so excited. I brought two of my, okay, I love all of them, but two of my favorite people that are working and implementing the Safe Babies approach in their state and communities. And so I have with me today a community coordinator from Frederick, Maryland, and her name is Jessica Latora. And I also have my friend Tiffany Perry here, and she is a statewide coordinator for the state of Utah who is doing a statewide implementation of the Safe Babies approach. And I'm super excited to have them here. I'm so happy to have you with us today, Tiffany and Jessica. Thank you. Thanks for bringing us on. Well, I've got to start off with a pretty deep question. I'd like to ask both of you, what exactly is your favorite drink at Starbucks? You know, I'm 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 generally not a huge Starbucks drinker. Um, I, I love, love, love coffee. Um, so I'm kind of very particular. But my husband is a big fall person. He's he does all the fall things. So we always go, he gets his pumpkin spice latte. And for me, they have this apple thing, crumble oat thing. Um, and it is really good. <laughs> so so that's been my go-to. Would you, would you be referring to the apple crisp oat milk yes. shake and espresso? Mm-hmm. Oh, yep. I, I had a it. buzzer. I wish I had a buzzer and just be like, <laughs> <laughs> quite fond of it myself. Uh, it has actually overtaken my love of chai this fall season. And I, I'm not usually big on the fall flavors, you know. How about you, Jessica? It's the brown sugar oat milk shake and espresso all day, every day. When I'm not drinking a chai, that has always been my default. Uh, Andrea, what are, you, what are you drinking these days at Starbucks? When I do get a treat, it's typically just an iced caramel macchiato. Jack Daddy enjoys that one. So I would like to ask the both of you, how did you get started in early childhood? You know, it's it's kind of funny. I had no experience with early childhood systems before I came into this work. My supervisor, Dr. Jennifer Mitchell, she talks about this occasionally uh, when she talks about my interview. I came in with some more experience around coalition building and community advocacy and and kind of that realm and violence prevention, but hadn't really worked with young kids at all. And um, apparently during my interview, there had been some concern from one of the other interviewers about my lack of that experience. But she she talks about how she is the early childhood person. So she felt pretty comfortable that if I could come in with my community work, that she would be able to fill in the gap. So Dr. Jennifer Mitchell is my main <laughs> exposure to early childhood systems. Um, and then, of course, getting connected with all of the wonderful people with Sierra to Three and uh, with all of the work that comes along with that. I wish I had a good story like yours, Tiffany. <laughs> um, I actually was that early childhood person. So I I'm not going to date myself. So I came to the work after my master's and actually was working in Baltimore City and really was doing some deep work around trauma and uh, young 
young children and families doing um, treatment. And so I was doing like home visiting. I was doing consultation with like early Head Starts, Head Start. I was doing kind of all of the things there and loved it. What brought me more to kind of the child welfare zero to three side was I had my own kids and I was commuting from Frederick down to Baltimore each day back and forth. That was like an hour, hour and a half one way. So figured, well, to probably kind of practice what I preach around young kids. So I got a job actually up here at the local child and welfare office, Department of Social Services as one of their reunification social workers and did that for three years and probably was emotionally the hardest job. I've ever had. And then they had actually just started a safe babies program about a year after I was there. And um, we had a wonderful community coordinator. Her name was Linda Mallory. And so she and I worked very closely together. And that's when I was like, yeah, I want your job. How do I get your job? Um, weird thing to ask somebody, but it worked out. So Linda actually was promoted within zero to three. And I was very, very lucky and fortunate to then be uh, Frederick County's community coordinator and have it look back. Did either of you have any experiences growing up with child welfare? Like, did you know someone who was in foster care? I actually, when I was born, I was in a mother's baby program with my mom. And so I know not a lot of people know that, but a lot of people will after this. (laughs) So I was there for about a year with my mom while she was recovering and actively working her sobriety. And then we were able to then be kind of reunified with my dad and my other sister. So I have a sister and, you know, bumps in the road, trials and tribulations. But, you know, for the most part, things went really well. That sounds incredible. So you were able to stay with your mom during that process. That probably has a big impact on how you do your work. Thank you for sharing that with us. You're welcome. And, and I didn't have any experience with child welfare directly. I did when I was very young. My mom separated from my father due to some family violence. And then also there was a lot of substance use on his part and incarceration. So I haven't known him at all since I was two or three years old. And this has been really interesting for me as I've been coming into this work. He was a member of one of the tribes in the United States. And I oftentimes have wondered about now as I'm working with families and working with dads who are engaging in these systems, wondering about what that court process was like for him while all of this was happening and how much supportive services there was for a man of color in rural United States during that time period. And that oftentimes makes me think about a lot of the families that we work with and and what that process is like. Yeah, I bet that brings an incredibly valuable perspective to, to your work. Why do you do what you do? I've been in violence prevention work since I was in college. Um, that was my passion. I've worked in, in different systems in that way. And I don't know if this is similar across the country, but I've noticed in the work that I've done that oftentimes different forms of violence have very siloed communities and, and the work itself is very siloed. So I worked in college with a bunch of groups who were advocating around sexual violence on college campuses um, and then kind of further out into the community. And then I worked for a local rape recovery center and worked for the hospital response team. So I would go to the hospitals when a rape victim was coming in to have an exam performed and would be there as an advocate. And then I worked with a lot of victims of domestic violence and people experiencing homelessness. Through all of that, I mostly worked with adults, which was... Like I mentioned, kind of coming into this, I didn't have a lot of work directly with children, mostly parents. And that's something I think that makes me very passionate about the work that I'm doing now, because I'm still seeing a lot of those same structures of violence, but I'm seeing them all pulled into into something that's a little bit more cohesive. And and I can see each of those touch points with all of the families that I'm working with. And I feel like this work really is starting to reduce those silos and be able to look at the bigger picture of why families are experiencing all of these different forms of violence at these different levels and how can we start to look at some of the structure and systems and how can we support and change and reform some of those things to be able to better support families and communities. You know, but Tiffany brings up a really good point because when I think about this job, I really feel at home with this job and I think it really has to do with Two of the main kind of pieces of this work is the systems work, which Tiffany eloquently just completely described to a T, the interplay of that work within individual families. There's just something about infants, about babies, about toddlers that just hits, wonder why, a part in me that is very like, the amount of joy that it brings is, it kind of catches me off guard sometimes because you, you know, when 
I sit in like a family team meeting and we see the kiddo come on camera and everybody looks at the kid and just starts making like this, ooh, ah, like this like really <laughs> random baby noises. There's so much joy that comes from kids, even in the darkest moments that I think that it's just perfect for me and, you know, how I am. It's this perfect match of all of that joy, all of, you know, with the joy comes pain. And how do you then really help to create a you know good situation for kids, for families, for parents, and then hopefully have an impact on those systems pieces that we all know need changes. If there is someone who is just starting out early childhood development work, what words of advice would you give them? I think for me, as being someone who had really no exposure <laughs> into this coming into it. And the biggest thing for me, I'd like to go back and tell that person was advice that Andrea gave me. Um, I think she was one of the first people that said is your job is not to be the expert in any of this. We're in so many different arenas in this specific job with being a community coordinator or being with a statewide coordinator. You're coming from all of these different realms. You're working with providers from the domestic violence field, from substance use field, and from transportation and housing and all of these different things. And it's not really your job to be the expert in any of that. What is your job, I think, is to be able to, to know when you don't know. If you come across something where you're, I'm not sure how that works. I'm not really sure what the best practice or methodology for approaching that specific issue is, is to be able to acknowledge that and then be able to go seek out the person that does know that information and then be able to be willing to learn. Um, so I think just having that openness to being able to acknowledge you don't have all the answers and then also to be willing to seek that out and find the answers. That's actually my favorite advice ever. The one thing that I really struggle with, I guess at this phase of my life is people who aren't willing to ask for help or learn more. So, But that's one of the things that I really love about Safe Babies is that we are constantly learning and evolving as we learn more. When we learn better, we do better. And the teams, the professionals, like the two that we have here are an example of that. How, I mean, we have evolved so much just in a short amount of time. And this uh, type of approach and this way of thinking about the really important work that's being done, and these are people's lives, that if it was me, that's I would want that, you know, I would want to continue to have that evolution and thinking and knowledge and practice. You know, clearly, we know what worked for us as a society 100 years ago doesn't really make sense today. And I think that's true of a lot of things. Might not have made sense then either. <laughs> well, no, it doesn't mean that it was right. But that's kind of my challenge always is why not? Why can't we do it a little different? Jessica, what words of advice would you have for someone starting early childhood work? When I started the work, I wish somebody would have told me more about foster and be in the relationships that you are telling other people to do. I think relationships are critically important to any job, but this job specifically. And I think it ties in a lot with what you're saying too, Tiffany, that there are many reasons why people may not think relationships are safe. And there's many reasons why people have that continual need to have somebody always showing up at the table and being there. So always just being predictable and consistent in that kind of relational context is, I think, really important. And I think the last thing is, I wish all of the school that I did would have taught me to take care of myself better <laughs> and to really, you know, focus on like, hey, guess what? Boundaries are a good thing. You should probably put them in your life. Like, you know, some of those things that we hear a lot about now, especially kind of like, are we post-COVID now? Are we in? I don't know what COVID's happened <laughs> with COVID right now, but a lot of it's been like kind of born out of that because it is so easy to get emotionally or even physically, you know, stressed. And especially in this like position, in this work that we're all doing, occupational hazard is secondary traumatic stress. And so um, I don't have a hard hat or construction hat to put on to like shield myself from any of that. So like being able to really think about it's not selfish to think about what my needs are, what your needs are, and to really then identify and help other people who are struggling too in that regard. So learn those things. Could you guys tell me what your inspiration is for doing this work? 
in my role now, I'm not working as directly with families, but I still get to hear about some of the things families are going through and through um, the folks that I'm supervising and just in, in the work that we're doing in general. And I think the resiliency and hope that families inspire is just really empowering, very inspirational to me of just that. I think oftentimes as social workers, we can get very, or in the field of social work, we can get very frustrated by the process. We can get very frustrated by folks not doing the things we expect of them or showing up in the way that we expect them to. But I think when we take the time to get to be vulnerable and open with folks and talk to them about their experiences and what they're going through, we oftentimes find that, or at least in my experience, I've oftentimes found that parents are are doing their absolute best and they're trying so hard to make a better life for themselves and for their children than what they had oftentimes when they were growing up. That's just incredible to me after some of the things parents have shared with me, what they've been through and that they keep showing up and keep trying. And that's really powerful. The thing about this work, I think that's very impactful to me is that it's beginning to help us show up how we need to, to better help families get where they need to go and be supportive and and be able to help break down some of the barriers that are just making it insurmountable sometimes for families to be able to get where they need to go. What it really inspires me is when, and it happens every single case in some form or fashion. So it might, it might be subtle or it might be like in your face, kind of completely blaring, is when parents and children show their voice or you hear their voice, you know, little kiddos, it's more kind of around like a lot of their play and stuff. And so there's some of those moments where, you know, there might be a kiddo playing and you see some things and you're like, I hear you. I see you. I got you over there. And then nothing inspires me more than when a parent stands up for their thoughts, their feelings and their baby in a way that positively silences a room. And to see that being supported by the team that's at the table. You know, our team is full of attorneys, social workers from the department, supervisors, resource parents, uh, service providers. And for everybody to just honor that space with silence and be like, hell yeah, it's remarkable. It's hard to put words around it. What motivates the both of you in this work? I think for me, it's, it's the relationships and seeing what's coming out of that. I think Jessica kind of made a a point to this earlier, just about that this work is so relational. And I think we say that over and over again when we're training folks and kind of exposing them to this work, but you really don't understand it until you get to see it in motion. And I've just seen such incredible things come out of conversations where people were open and um, honest about what they've been through and, and what they're experiencing, both professionally and personally, I think. The biggest barriers I see with with this work sometimes is the silos of just things operating in different systems without talking to each other. And this work specifically, I think, really tries to dismantle that. And I've seen that where we've had people who are doing kind of direct service level work and having administrators or program implementers thinking that a process that they're putting into place is going through smooth sailing and everything that they intended is working out. And then the service providers are coming to us and saying, that's not even close to what's happening. I didn't even know that this policy had been created. And that can be incredibly frustrating for both ends of the spectrum. And being able to hold space for that, where we can have a judge talking to a direct service provider or having a direct service provider talking to a policymaker, that has made a pretty big difference. And Again, we're only three years into our project in Utah, and so things are a little bit slow moving. I think that we're beginning to see these transformations that feel huge to me. And a big part of that is just people being willing to to show up to the table and be able to have those conversations, even when they're really difficult and they don't feel good sometimes. And being able to sit in that discomfort and being willing to challenge what we understand to be the status quo or the way that things should be done and questioning that, wondering how can we make this better? How can we transform this to be something that is uplifting families and uplifting the community and making it a better place? In my experience as a resource parent, I absolutely saw those things happen. I think that's what makes this so different from anything else that I've seen. Something that Tiffany said struck me is being able to facilitate or be a part of really vulnerable and difficult conversations. And I know that sounds really wonky and weird. The thing about that is from those conversations is really then 
the opportunity for something imaginative or creative to be born. And I'm sure Brene Brown has said a quote about this, but like it's the way that vulnerability in our team has an effect to move forward, not only kind of like family level type of things, but also then policy level types of things. When people become removed from the work, it's hard to remember what happens and how it happens and how hard it can be, but how joyful and how fulfilling things can can be. And when you're able to kind of like what Tiffany said, have either a judge speak to a service provider or a policymaker speak to a parent, those are the moments that we need to have because there's no hierarchy here. Hierarchy needs to be thrown out the window sometimes. I really feel like hierarchy just kind of holds in place some status quo that we really need to reevaluate and think about because when people are speaking for other people, it really <laughs> gets me frustrated because we have so many families, so many social workers, so many people at all of these different places at the table that can speak very well for themselves. And to be able to create those opportunities that that can happen, it's pretty freaking amazing. Both of you touched on something that I found very true when I worked with infant toddler court teams, which is just like taking down those barriers between people. And when we used to have the active community team meetings and Andrea would bring all these people in, there was a funny experience where somebody had stood up and said something to be the case. And I was sitting behind her and didn't really even realize that I said it out loud, but I guess objected in a way because my child hadn't had that experience, but we were able to work it out. Like in that room. And by the time I got home, the problem was fixed. So I literally got to see like the problem solving happen during one of those active community team meetings. She was talking to the director of this agency and had no idea. She's like, that's not true. (laughs) Well, but she fixed it, didn't she? That's kind of the point, right? Problem solving. That's (laughs) what so much of this is about. Was there an instance for either of you when you knew the work you were doing is making a difference for a particular family? I often think about the first family that I had that came in. I get emotional just thinking about that case. The parents came in and were both pretty young. When I sat down with them, it was my first time doing this. Wasn't really sure <laughs> like what, how everything worked yet. Was still trying to get my bearings. It was my first time going into the child welfare office. And I remember... Before I entered into the room, um, a child welfare worker had had approached me and said, you know, be really careful talking to dad because I think he's he's under the influence of something. And just thinking about like how that set the tone, like going into it. And I, I went into the room, sat down and started talking to dad. Typically, I would spend maybe... 30 minutes or so with each parent when I would first do an intake. I spent probably an hour and a half talking with this dad because he just wanted to talk about everything that was happening. He was so overwhelmed by the process. And I think in such a state of of trauma from losing his child and, and it bringing up so many experiences that he had had He'd been in and out of incarceration his entire life. Um, He had been in the child welfare system as a child himself. This was just bringing back so many things for him. I think back now about that worker who had told me that, oh, I think he's under the influence and about how that this man who was also a person of color, I think about like how many times people perceived him in that way and how that influenced um, his entire life and, and the way that he engaged with this system. That was such a powerful experience being with him and then and then also with the mom. Um, they both had had, if you're familiar with ACEs, they both had had nine out of 10 ACEs and just themselves had gone through the ringer through their childhood and then adulthood as well. The parents were both very passionate about getting their kids back and very passionate about everything. And so when they went into court, they were oftentimes getting in trouble because they were talking when they weren't supposed to and doing all the things you're not supposed to do. And they were loud. They had big feelings about things. And it was so influential to me to be able to see how they were engaging with these systems and then how that kind of transformed over time. As we both talked with the team about trauma. The worker that I had talked to initially was not a part of our safe babies team. We can tell. (laughs) (laughs) The workers that were a part of that uh, case later on, that caseworker is one of my favorites. She's wonderful and just so incredible and showed up for these parents in such a wonderful way at the entire case. She was so amazing. These parents had just gone through it and, and throughout this case, they really just wanted things to be better and different for their kids. And we um, got them into child parent psychotherapy and it made just 
a huge difference with this family. Um, they had come in ma- mainly because of a domestic violence dispute and had a history of domestic violence incidents. When we had talked to the parents originally about it, they had talked about how they weren't in an abusive relationship. This was just how they communicated that when they communicated, they got loud and that was just how they talked. And that was just the way things were talking with the parents about what it was like for them in their homes growing up. That was totally true for them. That's just the way that you communicate. When you have big feelings, you punch walls, you kick things, you throw people. And and that's just the way that it goes. And, and when we got the parents into CPP and we talked about That may have been the norm, but what was it like for you when you were a little kid and you watched your parents do those things? And how did that feel? It really helped the parents to understand that even though that had become the new normal for them, that it didn't feel good when they were little and it made them feel unsafe. And that really, um, sorry, I get so emotional to think about this case, Um, but it changed the trajectory so much. And after one of the therapy sessions, we had a family team meeting and it happened to be like the next day. So it was really fresh in dad's mind. And he spent at the beginning of each family team meeting, we would spend a pretty, we would ask the parents, how's family time been going? How is that going? And usually parents would give us some answers and they would sometimes be lengthy, sometimes not. This dad went on for about 30 minutes talking about his little girl and about just how much he adored her. And he just talked about, she's just starting to walk and she's babbling and I've been trying to teach her sign language and talking about her hair. and, And he was just just so enamored with this little girl. And then we talked about uh, child parent psychotherapy and how that was going. And he talked about how he wanted to, oh, sorry, <laughs> this dad, he got to all of us. We had a court hearing and all of us were in tears at the end of it. The judge, the, the attorneys, everybody. But this dad, he was talking about how he wanted to change his relationship with mom because he wanted his little girls to grow up knowing how it felt to be loved and respected by your partner. And he wanted to set the example of that so that they knew what love and respect would look like when they grew up and they started to have relationships of their own. And oh my gosh, that broke my heart. (laughs) And the way that the family just transformed, I think being able to just share in the joy of being together, um, both like parent and child and then parents with each other too. The way that the team in court was able to see that and we were all able to be a part of that and be able to support them through the process. And and that case didn't just immediately get better after that. There were a lot of ups and downs throughout the whole process, but the team was able to step in and be there as part of a team for the parents rather than fighting against them. It was such a big milestone, I think, for our team and also for just the project in general and and me as a person (laughs) professionally, because it was just so incredible. So, um, I just, I'm so grateful to that family for letting me be a part of their story. Wow. And think about how, when you walked in, someone tried to give you a prejudgment of this parent. And if you had like run with that and been a different person, how different the whole course of things would have been. That really hit me hard because one of my co-hosts, I was the resource parent for her kids when they were in care and she's reunified now and doing amazing. The first introduction to her was, I don't know if it was the case manager or guardian ad litem, basically telling me to keep my distance, that she was a wild card and probably wouldn't want to get involved with her. Had I listened to them instead of going with Andrea was kind of my introduction to becoming a foster parent or a resource parent because my very first case was an infant toddler court team that was in her community when she was a community coordinator. So I kind of learned how to be a foster parent through this approach. And I try and like take pieces of it into the cases that I am a part of. So maybe if Andrea hadn't been in my life, I would have listened to this case manager or what have you and uh, kept my distance. But thank God not because so much has come from that relationship. And I've learned so much from her. I wouldn't be the person I am without her in my life. And I'm thankful for that all the time. Yeah, just a lot of things wouldn't have happened if I had listened to that person. So, you know, speaking to our listeners, when we work in child welfare, we have to be careful with our words, like saying something like that. You might think you're just being helpful, giving advice to somebody you're working with, but that can completely alter how a case is handled. And parents really respond to feeling seen, feeling supported. And if they're looked at in the way that that social worker was looking at them, you know, it can alter their motivation to work their case plan. Uh, Jessica, was there anything that you wanted to share about a particular family or? There was a family that we worked with at the start of COVID. So the whole world was just thrown in disarray. And I remember we were working with mom. 
she's struggling with substance use. She had been struggling with substance use for a very long time. She's pretty young. This was probably her 20th like inpatient stay. She identified like this was very hard for her. She was able to reunify with her little one at a mother's baby program. I remember something happened. Something didn't go well. And so I actually went down. It was a mothers and babies program a couple counties away. So um, the social worker and I went down. And I remember specifically sitting at a picnic table with her and the social worker. And she broke down and she said, you're going to take my baby. And I remember we both like looked at her and we're like, nah, not happening because we're in this. Like, we're doing this and you're doing this. And it was just that literal vulnerability point to where then she came back around and she was like, you're not. And we're like, no, we came down here to support you to make sure that you're okay. And so then this whole train of kind of conversation completely shifted all of the thoughts that like, those kind of crazy thoughts that, Hey, we all get those in our heads. We're like, we start kind of ruminating and kind of thinking she was able to like, just completely put them on the table. And I just remember the social worker and I looking at each other being like, all right, this is the point. This is going to, this is a huge change point. This is where we're going to be shifting and things are going to be good. That just kind of vulnerability still strikes me to this day. Tiffany, could you tell us about your state's history with safe babies? How did it come to be and where does it stand today? Absolutely. I came into it after some really intensive work had been done. I mentioned earlier, my mentor, my supervisor, most incredible person I know, Dr. Jennifer Mitchell. She is our vice president of the Children's Center Utah, which is our organization. And she she wears so many different hats. One of the things about her is that um, she had worked in Florida for a while and had become familiar with Safe Babies programs and while she had been there and then had come to Utah and was working with us here in doing so had just been really impressed by the work that had come out of some of the programs that she had seen. And then she got to talking with um, one of the, the biggest community advocates in our state, who is Barbara Levitt, and they had been talking about this program. I think they had met at a conference or something and just ended up being able to see a presentation about it together. And they both were just so passionate about this concept um, and what it could mean working for young children. They were able to kind of bring a group together across the state, really, that was interested in this initiative and did quite a bit of work. I think it was about two years of talking with different um, folks across the state about this program and, and seeing if there was interest, talking to different judges, talking to different child welfare administrators to see where would it make the most sense if something like this were to get started, where would that get implemented? And after after having these conversations for quite a bit of time, a funding opportunity came up to be able to do a pilot program for safe babies through zero to three. That was back in 2019, I think, that they applied for that. And then they were awarded the grant, which was fantastic. First step of that is hiring a community coordinator. So that's where I came along. So I started this work in November of 2020. And the, most of the leadership team had already been established at that point. So I was working with Judge Sushada Bzell, who is our wonderful judge in fourth district. She is absolutely incredible of the, the people I want to be when I grow up. Dr. Jennifer Mitchell is one of them and Judge uh, Sushada Bazell is the other. Um, both incredible women who have done incredible things for our state. But our, our judge led a really incredible team. We have parent attorneys, we have guardians at litem, we have our assistant attorney general and child welfare team, child welfare administrators, all kinds of different people who were engaged in that. And then we also had a couple of researchers across the state who were engaged with child abuse and also early childhood intervention programs and tons of different people who were just really interested in seeing this work um, come to fruition. So first couple of months we spent just trying to get our feet on the ground and try to figure out how would we get something like this started up? And I spent quite a bit of time with Andrea getting some information about how to implement. And our team moved very quickly. So we had our first couple of cases um, with well within the first year, um, I think about four months and we took our first case. It was a lot of learning as we went. And as they say, the rest is history. But <laughs> we were able to, after two years, to apply for some expansion funding to be able to go statewide. We were awarded that last year in October. So we are just finishing year one, um, which is very exciting of the grant project. So we have four more years after this to be moving forward with our statewide expansion. So we're in the very early stages of statewide expansion and we're still trying to 
to figure that process out. And we have a lot of partners across the state who are interested in this. And we're always trying to build on that and identify more folks who want to be engaged. But we're very excited that in the first year, we were able to identify one expansion site. So that is in our fifth judicial district. And we have a judge there in Cedar City who we have just started our next site of Safe Babies for. That's really cool that you were able to expand so quickly. Can you describe the top issues that babies, toddlers, and families are experiencing in Utah? Oh, man, that's a big question. And I think um, a lot of this is, is it's interesting because there's some that feels very unique and very nuanced to Utah and what's happening there. And some of it feels very reflective of what's happening nationwide and some of the trends that we're seeing there as well. But some of the big things are I'll start with housing is probably one of the biggest. And I know that that's nationwide is happening as well, but it's just been really just the the cost of housing has skyrocketed in the last couple of years. And then there've been so many challenges related with program implementation and funding over the last couple of years with the pandemic and then kind of how things have shifted nationally and, and at a state level around that over the last couple of years and inflation and all of those things that are happening both in our small communities and, and then as far as nation and, and globally. So a lot of that there and then access to programs. I'd say our pilot site is in a pretty urban area. So we call that the Wasatch Front. And so we have quite a few resources available there. But as we're beginning to expand, most of Utah is in a pretty rural place. So there's definitely a lack of resources for families across the state and access to infant early childhood mental health is definitely lacking. There was a study done a couple of years ago in partnership with the Children's Center Utah that looked at early childhood providers across the state. And um, that was one of the biggest takeaways from the study was that there's just such a need for it in different pockets around Utah. We're definitely engaged with a lot of partners who are interested in that. And I think there is a lot of interest across the state for expanding some of these programs. But identifying funding sources and sustainability is definitely challenging. And workforce trends is really, really challenging as well, which again, national trends reflect that too. And then one of the things that's a little bit more specific to Utah is that the number one reason for removal of children from the home in the state is domestic violence. Domestic violence in Utah is just really difficult. Although we have really low homicide rates in general, we have over the last couple of years, I'm not sure if it what it was this last year, but over the last decade, we have numerous times been the number one state in the country for homicide by an intimate partner. So domestic violence is definitely something that is a major challenge for most of the families that we work with. Being able to provide resources to both victims and also interventions for those who are perpetrating violence is really difficult to get access to. And it's really hard to integrate those programs sometimes into the court process because of all the confidentiality and privacy that goes along with those, which are very much needed, very complex. So it's a very complex topic. Um, it's something I'm very passionate about. A lot of my, my work history was in the domestic violence field. I know so many people who are impacted by domestic violence and it is just really, really challenging. But it's something I think that our state is really passionate about trying to to address and be able to support families. I spoke with two parents this week who both were involved in domestic violence, which resulted in removals of their children. It's devastating, you know, especially how when women are victimized, we then penalize them instead of being supported and helped every step of the way. I, I'm like, I can't believe that somebody didn't step in at this point and do ABC. In my mind, I'm thinking of the resources that we have locally, you know, because we don't have anything like that. It's, you know, a lot more rural here. I guess we really do have a lot of resources that I just assumed would be everywhere and clearly are not. Our systems are really not set up to help families with family violence. It is a very punitive system for the most part and doesn't reflect oftentimes a restorative approach, which is oftentimes what families are seeking when they're experiencing family violence. Most of the families that I've talked to, um, and this includes in my professional life and in my personal life, many people don't want the person who is perpetrating the violence to disappear. They just want them to stop being violent. They want to have the person that they love, love them without committing acts of violence. And that's fair. <laughs> um, people think, I, I don't know what people think about, I, th I think if you haven't experienced domestic violence, it's very difficult to conceptualize what it's like. Um, 
and how it feels to be a part of a family dynamic where you're treated in that way. But most of the parents and people I've talked to, they want support to be able to help their partner or their parent or whoever to be the person that they know that they're capable of being. They just don't have, you know, the tools, the resources, the skills to be able to navigate that. And oftentimes it's rooted in trauma. And I think we don't really like talking about that because it's complicated and it's painful. But most people who are committing acts of violence have themselves experienced violence. And we need to figure out a better way of being able to support entire families, not just individuals. And and that's not to say that they're shouldn't be more of a focus on creating supports for people who need to escape those relationships because there are people who very much want to get out of those relationships, but due to the control dynamics in those relationships, they aren't able to, and due to a lack of resources like shelter beds, places to go, funding resources, all of those things, um, they don't have the ability to find a safe environment for themselves or their children. That doesn't even get into all of the different levels of financial abuse and how that impacts people and their ability to be safe and create safety for their children. Anyway, very complex stuff, but I feel very passionate about it. It's surprising to me sometimes to think about like child welfare systems, again, talking about levels of violence and how these conversations are had. They're very siloed. So we talk about child abuse and violence against children over here. And we talk about domestic violence over here. And we talk about sexual violence over here. And oftentimes these things are all interconnected. In my experience, just like in the field that we're working in, a lot of it comes down to trauma. So if we can have a more trauma-informed approach to people and relations and being able to build relationships to be able to support people in our communities, then I think we will see a decrease in violence overall. Wouldn't it be cool if there was like an approach that like actually did that? that (laughs) Sorry. Um, (laughs) Tiffany, each state and community has its own unique history, environmental context, leadership, resources, and curiosity. How do you navigate learning about your state's context and experience? Oh, I love that question because I'm still asking myself that. As I said, we're we're in our first, just wrapping up our first year. So that's what a lot of this work has been this past year is just trying to gather information, gather data. Some of that is is looking at your statewide data. So we have statewide reports from our child welfare system. They have their own report that they put out every year. And so you can learn interesting facts about that. You can learn about removal rates by district or county, and you can learn about reasons for removal, like substance use, domestic violence, neglect, et cetera. And that information can tell you a lot about what's going on and what some of the bigger challenges are in a specific community. And then there's stuff that the data doesn't necessarily tell you that you learn a little bit more from talking to the people who are living in those communities and what they're seeing, what they're experiencing. So again, coming back to this work of it is very relational is it's hearing people's stories and hearing what they're experiencing. When we were exploring, potentially expanding to Cedar City, um, which we've done, we spent some time talking not only with the child welfare team there um, and the, the judge, but we also talked with one of the domestic violence providers. We talked with the Head Start program. We talked with some of the early childhood providers. and tried to get to know the community a little bit better and try to talk with folks about like, what are some of the biggest challenges that you're experiencing? And what are some of the successes that you see here? I think when people talk about working in rural communities, they oftentimes assume that it's going to be much harder to implement something there um, because of the lack of resources and lack of funding oftentimes, which those are challenges. But one thing that we don't think about as much is that in smaller communities, there are teams there that just know each other really well and are able to make changes really quickly. If there is a need for something, then people are able to to make it happen. And sometimes they just need like a little bit of direction, a little bit of support. And um, sometimes because the, of the lack of funding, you sometimes have people who are working so hard um, that they don't have that time set aside in their nine to five to be able to explore what additional national resources or national funding streams or or state funding streams are accessible. So that's some of the work that we're doing is just trying to be able to go and connect the people who know their community best and know what their community needs and just be there to be an additional support and help get them connected into some of these statewide connections and streams and um, structures to be able to provide the support for the the programs and, and people who already know how to do the work that they're doing. What would it look like if your state had Safe Babies Approach implementation statewide? That's a great question. Um, 
because we talk about, you know, our, our grant is funded for statewide expansion. Um, but really what is in the grant is that we are funded to have three additional states expanded. So we have one and then now we'll be looking for two additional sites to expand to over the next five years. And then beyond that, that is a good question, I think, for a lot of the different providers that we work with and um, with the courts and, and with our state teams about what does this look like long term? Because I think the goal is, is that we're not going to have just a safe babies court and then have traditional courts being totally different. We really want the approach of safe babies to begin to become incorporated into the way that we do child welfare in general, because the main sort of areas of focus for the safe babies or the infant toddler court program is that we're being able to reduce silos. We're being able to increase family time. We're being able to meet parents where they are. We're being able to have an integrated system of care for families that are engaging in these systems. And so if we were to expand statewide, I think that's what that would look like, is that we are just being able to transform how we are responding to the needs of families with young children across the entire state, not just specifically in safe babies programs, not specifically just in child welfare systems, but across the state. How are all of the different systems that are meeting the needs of young children and their families, how are they transforming to be able to better support those families in those communities. Which leads us to the next question. As far as, you know, that is the goal. Have you seen that happen yet where something's starting to look different in your community, maybe in traditional child welfare because of the partnership with Safe Babies? Yeah, I mean, I think I've had conversations with some of our child welfare workers and also with some of our parent attorneys where there have been a few lessons learned out of the way that we are working with families um, that has impacted how some of the professionals are engaging with their clients outside of Safe Babies. I think one of the interesting things has been with our family team meetings, we changed the dynamics a little bit. So our community coordinators are the facilitators instead of the caseworkers. And our caseworkers would tell you um, that when we originally brought that in, they were not pleased, I think, with that process. <laughs> and um, we we definitely had some conversations early on about what that looks like. And we we changed it. We went back and forth. We implemented different strategies and had a lot of conversations about how can we make this move a little bit smoother? Through that process, in more recent conversations I've had with those teams, they've talked about how that has really changed the way they think about some of their other family team meetings and that they, in some cases, had really had family team meetings for the process of checking in with the parents to see like, how are you doing as far as the case plan? Like, where are you at on the sort of targets that we have set for you? And oftentimes, because those were interspersed between longer chunks of time between court hearings. They were really more just those touchstones of have you met these targets? And they weren't really spending a lot of time talking about the kids, talking about the baby and what's going on for them. How are they doing with their milestones? How are your visits going? And a lot of those things happened kind of more naturally, but the way that we have them sort of in integrated into our family team meetings of we're going to talk about the kiddo first. We're going to ask, how's the baby doing? We're going to ask about your relationship with the child. Those things have kind of shifted sometimes both the structure for caseworkers, but also transformed the way that professionals are thinking about engaging with families and really trying to get to understanding where folks are coming from in a different way. And I just feel like I keep Keep saying this over and over again, but getting to the heart that this work is very relational. It's being able to build relationships with clients that are coming into the systems, but also being able to build relationships with professionals. Even on my part, not making assumptions about why professionals are, are saying a certain thing in a meeting or having a specific thing that they want to get to in the meeting. It's really about trying to, to all have the common goal of supporting this family and what can we do to make that happen. So you recently attended Zero to Three's cross-sites meeting in D.C. How was it to network and connect with other state insight teams from across the country doing the same work as you do? It was incredible. It was a really great opportunity for us. And I'll say it was a great opportunity for our team just to come together. I mentioned that I started this work in November of 2020. And so we were completely virtual for a long time. And a lot of our systems have still stayed pretty virtual because we found that we were able to have more engagement oftentimes in family team meetings and in court hearings when people didn't have to take time off work to get there. So a lot of our work has stayed virtual and being able to see 
our teams in person and be able to connect in that way, there's there's nothing that compares to that. Being able to get dinner together and, and check in on how people are doing and find out about our pets and our children and how everybody is getting along. Those things give way for opportunities to have conversations about some of the stuff that we don't have time to cram in in our you know, 30 minute scheduled out meetings. So there's no way to describe, I think, the, the opportunities to be able to have the, that time to connect. And then similarly with teams and people across the country, I talked with quite a few folks that are just like so important to me and, and to this work and being able to have the chance to connect and, and hear from others about what are the challenges that you're facing? What are the things that you're succeeding at? And learning a little bit more about some of the dynamics across the country. And the more I hear from other states, the more I realize I don't know about how things work <laughs> because I have the assumption sometimes that the way our policies and procedures are set up in our courts and our child welfare is just standardized across the country. And I've learned that that is not the case. Different states do things entirely different. And that's why I really love the Safe Babies approach is that because not always one standard process is going to work in one state versus another because our states are set up to be run different. They have very different procedures and policies and communities. And this approach reflects that. We have a uniqueness to each of our own communities. And so we really want to be incorporating some of these core elements, like having a trauma-informed approach, having a relationship-based approach. But we also want to be able to adapt some of those policies and programs to better meet the needs of the unique communities that we're serving. I can really relate to that because as I have met more and more people who work with zero to three or work with safe babies around the country, first of all, every single implementation can be slightly different for its community, as you're saying. But no matter where they're doing it, it's all working. Why aren't more people talking about it is what I don't understand. Like you have something in child welfare that's working, that's helping families. I saw in my local community the difference that it really makes on a family level. It blows me away that it's also happening in other areas that this just really works across the board. It's exciting, man. It's so cool. Uh, when you were at Cross Sites, what was one thing that you learned that you're hoping to apply within your state? I, I spent quite a bit of time talking with the director of the National Indian Child Welfare Association, and she and I had sat on a panel together. So we got to know each other a little bit better and got to talk with a couple of other folks. But we conversed quite a bit about engaging with tribal partners. I have my own investment in wanting to to learn more about some of our tribal communities across the state in Utah. But I, I think also in this work, oftentimes tribal communities are left out of the conversation. And we had some really great conversations about how to be looking forward to build relationships with tribal partners and also not come into a community who has been historically traumatized and targeted by the state and how to come to communities and offer support in a way that feels genuine and authentic without feeling like we are trying to push or force any sort of program or implementation onto onto anyone. Those conversations, I think, were really incredible. Um, and, and I learned a lot from those. And then also just trying to learn more about what can I do both personally as an individual and then also as a professional and someone who's trying to implement a statewide program about how to better understand and learn about the unique communities that exist within our states. And that was a big takeaway for me is just trying to remember and checking my own internal biases and then also my own internal assumptions that I make about specific communities and, and really trying to get to learn more about how communities operate and the systems that exist within them and what are the challenges and what are the what are the strengths that communities have that support each other um, in ways that maybe others don't. That was really powerful to me. I wonder if, if there was a way for more of our listeners to learn more about NICWA. NICWA, the National Indian Child Welfare Association, is one of our um, national partners here at the National Resource Center at Zero to Three. And they are partnering with us for this next five-year implementation across the 12 states um, to offer support. And we recently were just in Utah with Tiffany and her state team and her community teams with NICWA. And so that was a really amazing experience. As a resource parent, the only thing that I've really known is that if a case 
is related in any way to a tribal family, the things run differently. But I've never had one where that was the case. Really know very little about it. Um, I'd love to know more. Just this week, I spoke with two moms and one of them was Jackie Polk, who we interviewed. And then the other one was a mom locally who we're trying to advocate for. One of them went through her dependency case and that applied. And the other one, we're trying to help her figure all those pieces out. Tiffany. Yes. <laughs> what is the role of family team meetings and why are they so important when strengthening relationships and families? Yeah. Um, I love family team meetings and they're very challenging sometimes. Um, the, the role of the family team meeting is to really gather information about how how the case is going outside of the court hearings and to be able to build relationships between yourself and the parents as the community coordinator, but also between the caseworkers and the parent and also between the parent and the child. Um, and really, it's just to try to get everybody that's involved in this case at the same table, metaphorically, if you're virtual, but <laughs> trying to get everybody together to be able to talk about all of their different roles, how they're involved in the case and how we can use the information from our different roles to be able to support this family. And and everybody who's there oftentimes is representing kind of a different interest. I think traditionally that's how it feels sometimes is you've got all these different parties who are there to, to argue for their side. And what we are hoping to do is try to tr shift that, transform that to be where Everybody is just a partner on the same team who is showing up because we're on team baby. We want to help this baby. We want to get this baby where they need to be. And we want to make sure that they are safe, healthy, happy, have secure attachments with their caregivers, being able to prevent as many adverse childhood experiences and traumas as, as absolutely possible. Yeah. Uh, family team meeting days were always my favorite. Yeah. I think that if you get people in a room enough, like they just start to like each other. They know? do. And, and that's not to say I've, I've had some family team meetings that were life-changing and really positive, like affirming way. And I've had family team meetings that absolutely broke my heart. And that's part of this work too. And, and so I think I enjoy talking about this program and I oftentimes sort of like talk more about the really like fun, positive parts of it. Jessica got to a really good point earlier when she was saying a lot of this work also is in the conflict. We have really difficult conversations sometimes um, and not even just with the parents, just with the professionals. Sometimes the hardest conversations are with the professionals <laughs> and, and not because anybody is being unkind or disrespectful, but because we're all very passionate about what we do and we're very passionate about trying to keep people safe. And that can be hard sometimes to have those conversations. And, and some of, of this work is, is just you're working with people and that can be hard sometimes. But I think that when we have those really challenging conversations and we're able to to remember that we are all here for this child um, and we're all trying to make a better life for this family, we have some really incredible outcomes come out of that. But I just want to acknowledge that not all of this is, is light and fluffy. Sometimes it's it's really hard. What are some practical ways to integrate infant mental health supports in child welfare? Ooh, good question. Um, I think for us, what we've been trying to do is we offer a lot of training opportunities. Um, so we, we're trying to have pretty consistent training opportunities. One of my favorite trainings that we have done this year was with Dr. Chandra Gosh Ippen, and she is one of the creators of child parent psychotherapy. We did the ripple effects training, which was to talk about both child parent psychotherapy, but also to talk about how we can use some of the trauma-informed approach into some of the systems level work that we do. And so it was a training that was really catered at professionals that are working with young children. It was amazing and I absolutely loved it. But I think some of the training information that we do, we try to oftentimes hit kind of two target goals. One, to create more information about infant early childhood mental health, because I'll say for me, as someone who did not have a lot of early childhood background coming into this, I didn't really know about infant early childhood mental health or that that was a thing. I think oftentimes when we start talking about this, people will say, oh, well, like the baby can't even talk yet. Like they're not going to remember what happened. So it's not that big of a deal. And as someone who did not have a caregiver in their life that lost their caregiver before the age of three, I'll tell you that it does impact you. <laughs> it does impact your mental health and your development and all of these different things. So I think that 
one of the things that we were trying to do is just as a baseline, begin to have conversations with folks about what does infant early childhood look like and what does that mean? Um, and then how can we begin to integrate that into the way that we are working with young children and working with families? So some of that is by providing some of these larger trainings that are about like the growing brain or um, talking about child parent psychotherapy and how we are using a trauma informed approach to be able to address infant early childhood mental health. And then some of it is just in the conversations that we're having. So if we're having a family team meeting and um, we hear a professional say, oh, well, the kiddo did this thing, we can kind of come back and, and maybe use the DC zero to five, um, which is our, our case book that kind of talks about different cases of incidences of infant early childhood mental health crises and, and different things that are coming through and being able to use examples of clinical frameworks and how we, we can begin to from that infant early childhood lens, begin to understand why children do the things that they do because they do things differently than adults do and older children do. Um, so beginning to understand why are kids making the decisions that they are? This happens a lot with families and, and professionals when um, young kids have really intense reactions to their parents. So one of the things that we've implemented in Utah County um, is the attachment biobehavioral catch-up which is a home, originally a home visiting program, they have created a fostering relationships program, which targets families who have had um, a removal. And it's a intervention for families for the first five visits after removal. And really the idea of that is that you are able to um, provide the parents some support and reflection and education around infant early childhood and attachment and why a child after not seeing their parent for a couple of days might not seem excited to see them, why they might pull away, why they might act out in a way that we're not expecting and being able to give some of that framework for the parents to be able to understand that your child is confused and doesn't know how to explain that to you. And so they are reacting in this way. Being able to give that framework, not only to the biological parents, but also to the resource parents and also to the professionals who are watching this interaction so that they can understand. It's not that the kid is scared of their parents. It's not that the kid doesn't like their parents. It's that this is a very typical behavior that we would see with a child after the removal of a caregiver that they're used to spending every day with all the time. And being able to normalize some of those behaviors can really transform the the way that we start to respond to children and families. And we get to see the interactions between these families and the dynamics in a very different way. And that helps us to make better decisions about, is this child safe? Is this child comfortable? Is this child happy? And and that begins to inform how we view attachment and all of these really important things that we need to be talking about when we're talking about um, child welfare and well-being. What are some examples of protective factors that can ensure children and families can thrive in their environment? I oh, love that question. Some of the biggest protective factors we talk about are community supports and social supports. Humans are social people, social creatures. We um, do not live very well alone or in isolation. And unfortunately, I think our system is not necessarily set up for that right now. A lot of the families that we work with feel a lot of isolation. They experience a lot of isolation and it's really challenging to build community, especially I've had so many families who have come in who maybe the people that they consider to be their social supports are also the people that they're being encouraged from systems to not engage with anymore because they themselves have a history of criminology or of substance use or what have you. We are oftentimes telling parents or whoever that you shouldn't talk to so-and-so because they're a bad influence on you. Then we also tell the parent, you need to have social supports in order to make good decisions and to be able to have better mental health. Um, and parents really are between a rock and a hard place sometimes um, when, we're, when we're making those recommendations. So I don't know, that's, that's complicated, but I think trying to, trying to be able to identify social supports for folks, um, for, for kiddos and too, like we talk about attachment, it's really important for a child to have a secure attachment with their caregiver. That's one of the biggest predictors of healthy um, and typical development is being able to have that attachment. So I think that, um, really trying to have both quantity and quality family time for children who have been removed from their caregivers and making sure that that attachment is not lost during this process and that 
when um, we're beginning to look at a child home placement or bringing the child back into the home with their caregiver, that we're making sure we're supporting that relationship. Not only just like, are we need to be asking questions like, are you prepared for kiddo to come home? Like both logistically, like, do you have a crib? Do you have a place for them to sleep? Do you have food? Do you have a way to access food? Like all of these sort of logistical questions, but we also need to be asking the kind of more Squishy questions. Squishy is my new favorite word. I use it for for things mostly related to emotions. (laughs) Um, But we need to be asking the questions about like, how do you feel? Are you feel ready to have this kid home full time? Are you scared? What's going on for you? Um, And asking if that caregiver feels prepared and then acknowledging that it might be hard for both kiddo and parent. That kid had a really difficult transition from the biological parent to the foster parent. They're going to have a difficult transition likely from being with foster parent back into a different home as well. Anytime we're changing caregivers, that's challenging. It's hard for kids. And that doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means that it's hard. And so when we start to see kiddos having more behaviors when they go back into the home with parent, that's not necessarily a sign that something bad happened. It's maybe a sign that the kid is confused and that they aren't really sure what's happening. We need to be able to have the resources and education as professionals to see that when it's happening and being able to acknowledge and hold space for what that is and to be able to support that family through that process. What I'm curious about as a foster parent, is there a way for resource parents to help support in building that with the families? Oh, I love that question too. Um, one of the things that I just mentioned that we do is fostering relationships. And so the, I mentioned kind of that part of like the mentor educating the parent and doing some reflection with the parent. The other piece to that is that we ask the resource parent or foster parent to be engaged in that as well. So they themselves go through their own separate training about child reactions and behavior and about what they might be seeing. And then we ask them to attend the visits. So they're there to be able to help support that transition so that this child has both of their caregivers in the same room together and that they can see them having a positive interaction in a way that makes them feel safe. And um, a big piece of this is just being able to have that willingness to co-parent. And I, I it's, it's so challenging. I, I think there's a lot of things that, that can kind of go into that. But I think being able to have the intention of when you're working with a family that your goal is to try to help support this child and their family. And and that means having a relationship with the biological parent and supporting the biological parent because we can't support the child without supporting the parent. And I think so just really like having a clear set of intentions kind of going into this of, of what does it mean to be a resource parent? Does it mean that you're a resource parent for just the child or does it mean you're a resource parent for the whole family? And that's hard and, and complicated. And I'll acknowledge that. And I also have never been a resource parent or a foster parent. So I acknowledge that too. But I, the cases that I've seen that have had the biggest impact has when I've been able to see that relationship grow and build between the bio parent and the foster parent. I've had a couple of cases where the foster parents just, they, they went above and beyond just to be a part of the a biological parents' lives. And even in, in some of those cases, even the, the children didn't reunify with the parent. And they still have maintained a really positive relationship with the biological parent. That might mean having to set certain boundaries and things might have to change over time. And part of our job as professionals is to help guide and support that relationship as time goes on as well. But I think being able to have that intention of being able to have a wraparound approach, not only within our systems and with professionals, but also with the families that are working together to be able to support this child. A lot of foster parents have this feeling like that nobody wants to involve them. You go to staffings and just kind of like the parents, you walk in and you get surprised by things. And, you know, everybody around the table seems to know what's going on, but you don't. Um, And that's not how I felt at all when I worked with infant toddler court teams. I felt like I was part of the team. like, And that made the hard things easier because you felt supported and really valued. I feel like that's something that so many foster parents complain about all the time. If you start doing these things, you can actually be part of it. And in the end, the result is better for the child, which is what all of our goals should be, right? 
Absolutely. I just want to thank both of you so much for joining us today and sharing about your work with Safe Babies and also for all the good that you are doing in your communities for families. So I really just appreciate it. And thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for for doing this. I've listened to a couple of episodes from the podcast and I've really enjoyed it. And I, I think it's really cool. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.